that the question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. Welcome to the program here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, and available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst, and on the show today, we take a critical look at the recently launched Vancouver Rent Bank with the authors of a recent expose published on themainlander.com. What does a billionaire mining magnate have to do with the Vancouver Rent Bank, and is the Rent Bank a temporary fix for a much larger problem? Stay with us as we explore uh, these questions and many more. This is The City, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions. Stay with us. Too fast and way too much. Hey. 
that's Janis Joplin with Dear Landlord. Uh, and uh, on October 16th, 2012, uh, authors Nathan Crompton, Andrew Witt, and Tristan Markle published an expose looking at the newly launched Vancouver Rent Bank. And uh, the article is titled Financial Crisis and Tax Evasion, Unpacking Vancouver's Rent Bank. And that's exactly what we're going to do, uh, but in radio form uh, today here on the city. Uh, we're going to dive into uh, the Vancouver Rent Bank and unpack um, somewhat of the uh, uh, less uh, public um, uh, mapping, if you will, of, of how the rent bank came to be and where that money came from uh, to make it possible. So without any further ado, uh, we're going to go to a, a news report from Global BC. Uh, this is from television um, from October 10th. And this uh, presents uh, a mainstream media perspective as to uh, uh, how the rent bank uh, is going to operate and how it's uh, addressing the issue of affordability and um, potential homelessness in the city. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us today. Our top story, renters in the city of Vancouver now have somewhere to turn when they need help to pay for their rent. The city of Vancouver has established a rent bank, an institution which will provide small, interest-free loans to people in a temporary financial crisis. It's part of the city's affordable housing and homelessness strategy. And as Grace Key reports, it could help prevent more than 1,500 evictions. Marilyn McKee is a self-employed Haida jewelry carver and single mother. As the Block Watch captain and vice president of the Ray Camp Community Center on East Hastings, she's very involved in the community. Last year, she hit some hard financial times and turned to the community center's iRent program for a loan. It gives us a safeguard and kind of gives you that peace of mind that if things aren't going well financially and you have a moment where, you know, you don't have that income for the month, that that extra is coming in, yeah. that you're able to at least pay the rent and feed your child. The Network of Inner City Community Services Society administered the IREP program, and it was used as a guide for the City of Vancouver's new Rent Bank program that's launching today. So we're looking at people that would be facing a temporary financial crisis, and for some reason, whether that's medical or loss of a job or some other crisis in their family, um, would be falling short in their rent or in a utility bill that month. And so we're looking to be able to provide an emergency loan. The Vancouver Rent Bank offers a one-time interest-free loan to low-income people who have a stable or soon-to-be stable income. The average loan is about $835, and it's to be paid back in one to two years. The program is meant for people like Marilyn, who may not be on assistance and fall through the cracks. The working ones are the ones who would face eviction and lose their homes. And I know at the time I couldn't get my friend to come and ask for help. And her and her kids have been homeless for over a year. So programs like this exist because they need to exist for just the average person. The City of Vancouver is contributing $149,000 over the next three years for administrative costs. The Street to Home Foundation is providing the actual loan fund of $150,000 a year. So far, there's been 11 applications. It's estimated the program will prevent 150 people a year from being evicted. And that was Global BC's report on the Vancouver Rent Bank uh, from October 10th. And now we're going to turn to uh, a discussion with um, mainlander uh, authors 
uh, Nathan Crompton and Tristan Markle. It was also uh, co-authored by Andrew Witt, uh, but he unfortunately wasn't able to join in that conversation. And I caught up with them on October 22nd uh, to uh, really unpack um, a lot of uh, the issues around the rent bank, which were not addressed. Um, and as uh, you'll tell, you can uh, you'll be able to hear, they were not addressed in that Global BC report, um, and much of the uh, mainstream media neglected to uh, to focus on. So uh, we're going to go right into that, and um, uh, beyond that. Um, you know, be thinking about issues of charity versus justice and whether the rent bank um, is something that is um, a productive way to dealing with affordability or if it's sort of that band-aid approach. Um, and a number of these issues are addressed. And let's start with you first, Tristan. Can you uh, give us a bit of an overview of um, the Vancouver rent bank? Can you provide a much more critical analysis uh, of Vancouver's new rent bank, which was recently launched by Vision Vancouver. Yeah, thanks, Andy. Uh, the rent bank was proposed over the past year as one of the components uh, or creative solutions that's supposed to help with the widely acknowledged housing affordability crisis in the city. Um, over 50% of Vancouver residents are renters, and the rent is some of the highest in the country. And the rent bank uh, in particular, uh, the way that this one is supposed to work is that it's a one-time loan uh, available to a tenant, and you can only apply one time, and the maximum you can get is 1300 and you um, pay it back uh, over a year or two years. And in order to qualify, you have to show that you have steady income and that you'll be able to pay it back, um, which will obviously disqualify a large portion of the people who will be needing it or who will be facing eviction. And um, the uh, way that the program is administered is also noteworthy. It, uh, although the city of Vancouver is taking a lot of credit for it, they will not be running it. It will be run by a non-profit organization called the Inner City Community Services Society. And the city of Vancouver is also not funding it the funding is coming from a philanthropic group of um, of uh, developers and corporate magnates, and uh, they'll be uh, funding about $360,000 over the next three years as, as loans. So it's important to note that this is not uh, something that they're giving away. It, it's a loan to be lent out to poor or renters that are facing eviction. And... So although the city is not operating it and they're not um, giving any uh, money other than a small stipend to support uh, one of the employees at the nonprofit, they're taking a lot of credit. So there have been many press conferences over the past year, uh, last fall and in the spring, and then again last week. And it's interesting to, to note uh, the exaggeration that the city uh, has been using and Vision of Vancouver in particular to make this sound like it's a bigger program that's going to be more helpful than it probably will in the large scheme of things. So they said that it's going to stop 1,600 evictions per year, and that that was quoted in the Georgia Strait and the Vancouver Sun last week. But it will uh, at most uh, be giving out 150 loans per year, so it would deal with 150 evictions 
maximum. And the way they inflated that number was that uh, they have loan, they're planning to give out loans for three years, so they multiplied 150 times three and then multiplied that again by three because they assumed that there'd be three people in each household, which is also not, which is also an exaggeration for the size of renter households. So it's a little bit in, um, a revealing about the kind of, uh, <clears throat> credibility of the people who are taking credit for this, that they're not running it, they're not funding it, and there's, no money going into helping renters. There's no grants. There's just loans from private corporations, and yet still the city is using using this as an opportunity to take a lot of credit for addressing the housing crisis. Um, and and I guess we'll talk in a little bit about how this doesn't cut to a lot of the core issues, and probably won't help any families who need it the most, or who help them on an ongoing basis and the month dealing with the high rents on an ongoing basis. So you mentioned that this is the, some of this money is coming from private corporations. This is not something that has been very public, um, and you raise a point that I think we need to sort of unpack. So who is providing this money, and who is involved in uh, in making this uh, program possible? Um, well, I think some of the, the history around the rent bank is important just to know that Initially, the rent bank was proposed in 2005 um, under under the city's homelessness strategy um, under a COPE government. Um, in that do- in a, in the document that came out of that, which was the the homeless action plan, uh, the idea for the rent bank was that it would be both um, both a loan but also a grant system um, for for tenants facing crisis. So, like a lot of um, vision policies. It's it's uh, an extension of previous um, municipal government policy, but always watered down. So in this case, they've taken out the grants part, and so now it's just loans. And with that is um, with that is making it so that all the loans come from private developer and mining um, finance. Um, as Tristan said, it comes through the street to home. Um, the Street to Home Foundation. The Street to Home Foundation is basically Vancouver's wealthiest developers and and mining um, tycoons. Um, one of the biggest mining tycoons is Frank Justra, um, who who many people might know through Gold Corp. Gold Corp is a descendant of of one of his initial um, mining projects. Um, so Frank Ustra is basically the fundraising chair for Street to Home. And as fundraising chair, what he's done is instead of soliciting money from, from you know, his, fr- his friends or his mining colleagues or whatever, um, all of the money for the program is coming from his own charity. Uh, the charity is called the Radcliffe Foundation. And with a little digging, you quickly find out that the Radcliffe Foundation um, is a charity uh, run by by Frank Justra that is used to invest heavily in mining companies and and to uh, invest tax free money into um, large mining projects globally. Um, you also quickly find when you dig in that the Radcliffe Foundation has already been fined by the federal government for tax evasion and what the CRA Canadian Re- Revenue Agency calls excessive corporate holdings. Radcliffe Foundation in 2010 was using um, more than the allowable limit 
to invest charity money into mining companies. Um, it's supposed the the limit is supposed to be twenty percent, and Juicer was using Radcliffe to invest up up to fifty percent in uh, a large mining company called Sky um, called called um, uh, Sky. Uh, what's it called? Sorry, I have it right in front of me. Uh, Sky Ridge Resources. So it's basically a mining company, and the charity is being used to invest. In, in a private mine, mining company. Um, so in 2010, he gets this big fine. Um, and essentially what it says is, you have excessive corporate holdings. You need to distribute your corporate investments and your profits into other investments. You have to basically thin out the money. So he gets creative and um, over the course of two years, figures out that he's going to put some of those profits into um, street to home and in specific into the rent bank. So through the rent bank, he's allowed to uh, he's allowed to keep that profit from the mining company um, in a charity. So instead of having to move it out of Radcliffe Foundation, he's allowed to keep it circulating as tax free charity money. So he's not giving it to the to the rent bank. He's lending it um, um, through the rent bank and is presumably going to make it back. Um, he's going to have some losses because obviously some people aren't going to be able to pay, pay back these loans. They can't pay their rent in the first place. Um, microloans are, um, are causing people to you know, get into greater levels of debt all over the world. Um, in some cases, microloans can help people get off the ground. But in a case like Vancouver, when housing prices are only increasing and wages are totally flat or, or even um, stagnating or even you know, going down, um, a rent bank is not, not of course, going to solve those sort of fundamental issues, which we'll talk about in a second. But um, um, Tristan was involved in writing an article about um, urban farms in Vancouver also being used for similar tax evasion purposes just in the sense that the farms allow the the landowner to then be put into a new tax bracket which is a lower tax rate what's interesting is Justro has been involved in some of those um, so um, so Tristan could probably talk more about that yeah that's true that uh, Frank Justra is also um, the brainchild of using uh, undeveloped uh, lands that developers are speculating on to lower the um, lower the tax the tax rate on those lands so that developers can uh, um, more easily financially sustain sitting on the land speculating it and not developing it so for example uh, one of the biggest urban farms you'll notice the past uh, year has been put up on the Concord lands uh, Concord Pacific's empty lands on North Falls Creek, part of the old Expo lands, and it's a massive site. And the amount of taxes that they would they would be paying on that site would uh, normally, on these these particular parcels where there's urban farms, would be about half a million per year. Um, but um, Frank Justra, uh, working with the Street to Home and the new networks that he made with counselors, vision counselors, and Gregor Robertson, um, came up with an idea where if they would have urban farms on these lands, then uh, Concord Pacific would, instead of being charged at the business tax rate, which is 1.5% per year, would be charged at uh, a lower rate, like 
percent, which is like a third of the tax rate. So it's massive savings, hundreds of thousands of dollars of savings. Um, and there's that's not the only parcel where Concord Pacific is doing this. They're also doing it on two properties in the downtown east side where they're speculating on the land, waiting for low-income people to be displaced from the neighborhood so that they can build condos. And that includes 58 West Hastings, which is where the Olympic Tent Village was, and a lot right next to Insight. People may wonder about the urban garden there. So um, regardless of the uh, usefulness of permanent temporary, uh, permanent urban gardens, these are temporary gardens that are only there for a short period of time, and they will be gone as soon as... Um, the developers are ready to gentrify the neighborhood. So that that was also Frank Justra's idea, and he runs that, and he also um, puts in capital into uh, some of the um, enterprises that are running on running on there, and just funnels his his capital through that too. So it's an idea of just another example of his his creativity and the the connection between greenwashing and a lot of the pseudo progressive stuff that the council is doing now. Uh, and these big corporate guys are into tax evasion, and so the networks are pretty deep there. Uh, there's a, a talk that um, political philosopher uh, Slovav Zizek gives, and it's available as a YouTube clip, but he explains the logic of, of cultural capitalism or neoliberalism in a way that the capitalist in the morning... Uh, works making their money, uh, maybe in Justra's case, doing mining and um, dispossessing people potentially from their land in, in parts of the global south. And in the afternoon, uh, around four o'clock, he gives some of that money away. And I guess maybe in this case, he doesn't even give it away. He's uh, giving a bit of a loan that he's hoping to get back. Um, can you talk more about sort of this as, as uh, a sign of the times <laughs> in, a, in a broader context? Totally. So I think added. I think Zizek is is a good kind of <laughs> making a good diagnosis of global capital, but Vancouver in particular. I mean, Vancouver is a place where um, the municipal government is essentially taking all measures possible to maximize the amount of profit that the development industry can can make. Um, whether it's subsidies, whether it's, you know, fee exemptions, subsidies to the development industry for new rental with no caps on rent rates, whether it's um, having the lowest corporate taxes, um, not, on, not only in North America, but in the world for the last four years, um, according to KPMG. Um, uh, the municipal government has um, taken all these measures to guarantee maximization of profit and then using the authority of the city to then legitimize private philanthropic enterprises that at the end of the day turn around and give back, you know, a tiny portion of those profits. Um, in this case, not even giving back the profits, but um, using those profits to, that, to then increase the debt loads of people who are suffering the most from the housing crisis. Um, up to last year, Canadians had a household debt of 150, 153% per household. Um, the calculation was made now this year, and that's up to 163% um, household debt. Um, on average, um, that rate is basically higher than the American household debt prior to the subprime crisis, um, which means um, mortgages and households are more over leveraged than prior to subprime. Um, 
in a context like that, um, where the banks and the developers are extracting such an extraordinary amount um, from renters and homeowners, um, there's obviously going to be a gap between people's ability to pay and between the prices that demand that that bankers and developers are demanding. So to make up for that gap, central bank and now the municipal government are facilitating ways to add another layer of debt. Um, the situation is unsustainable. The amount of debt that people are accumulating is unsustainable. And um, this small scheme, I don't think, is going to be able to um, affect uh, the, the, the situation. Is probably going to make it worse. Because with the rent bank, so people are faced with uh, the inability to pay for their rent. They get a loan from the rent bank. And then uh, I guess the problem is you're not addressing it at the root cause because the landlord can keep in- making increases. So I, the argument you're making is you're artificially inflating uh, the rental market. Um, and again, this I guess we could extend this same logic uh, to home ownership as well, um, just finding ways to prop it up. But yeah. do you, do you want to talk more about that or any other thoughts around that? Um. I think that since the financial crisis in 2008, um, neoliberal governments, which you would think would have been delegitimized, have been able to, yes, find new ways to um, sustain and extend um, the neoliberal economy. And one of the cornerstones of the neoliberal economy is high housing prices. Um, And I think the new sort of frontier of that at the policy level is probably not only through you know things like the rent bank but also social, moving from social housing to rent supplements um, taking money that w- that used to go into public housing and putting it into um, other forms of essentially using renters as a mediator for f- injecting more money into the private housing market and now public money into the private housing market um, and it, just to add that this has been the method of of dealing with uh, this issue in the U.S. with um, the way that um, public housing or the, the public uh, sector goes to subsidize um, or assist people by essentially, essentially giving them a voucher um, to then take that into the private rental market. So somewhat of a similar yeah, logic. Exactly. I mean, the voucher system was brought in under... It basically, the voucher system was brought in under Reagan in the 1980s, um, and we saw it come a bit later. But now it's really being kind of brought to its full flourishing. But right now in Vancouver is a great kind of example of the convergence between this kind of false progressive, uh, kind of false progressive neoliberal governance merging with a kind of hard right Reaganism. And I think the Affordability Task Force is a kind of good, kind of interesting example of that because the task force was co-chaired. On the one hand, you had it co-chaired by Gregor Robertson. Then you had it co-chaired by Olga Illich, who, who, what, you know, who is this kind of far right, hard, you know, hard right neoliberal developer. She's a, she made her money as a, um, mostly a developer in the suburbs. Um, and she's been a BC Liberal cabinet minister and stuff like that. But on housing policy in particular, it's this amazing convergence of kind of centrist neoliberalism with this kind of far-right Reaganism. Um, um, 
including um, the way in which, yes, c- c- city policy is bringing in far-right ideas, um, like STIR and other things like this that we've already talked about. But the just to jump in there, um, the argument is made um, and uh, is often made, I sh- should add, that maybe this is a way to prevent people from ending up on the street. So, it's yeah, it's not the best solution, um, but it's a temporary um, fix at a time when maybe we just need some of these, however incremental they might be, we need them immediately and we need them in place mm-hmm. to prevent that immediate, uh, the, the possibility of immediate homelessness. So how would you respond to that? Some people will be helped by getting this last minute grant uh, loan. Uh, it's not a grant as it was, as it was supposed to be. Um, it's a very small number of people. Um, uh, I'm, the, the rent bank has already been active for a few months, so I'm pretty sure the, the wait list is probably already maxed out. It's going to be about 150 people. Um, but it's good to think through what happens when a person takes, takes a loan from the rent bank. So you can't pay your rent um, and you apply to the rent bank and in the off chance that you're successful with your application, you'll get a one-off loan that then um, puts you in debt to the rent bank for the next two years. Uh, the rent bank has Im- automatic access to your to your bank account. You give them the rights to automatic withdrawal from your bank account. Um, and essentially it adds, let's say you take out a $1,000 loan um, and you have to pay it back within, say, 20 months or something. That's going to add whatever, $30, $40, $20. It's going to add $50 a month to the rent that you're already paying in the subsequent months. So you may, you can't pay for one for rent for one month, but yet you're expected to somehow, with, with your flat wages and, and poor employment prospects, all of a sudden have an extra $50 every month for every subsequent month for the next two years you can sort of start to see how people are going to get themselves in mm-hmm. worse situations. People are going to be going through new layers of debt. They're going to apply for payday loans to then cover the debt that's being automatically withdrawn for the rent bank. And so you can kind of see how this is not really a solution to a more fundamental problem. But I agree that in some small cases where for you know if someone is having exceptional circumstances that it's going to help them and it's really interesting to see how the rent bank is framed and defended as being for people who are just in exceptional circumstances um rather than in in broader terms so as a policy question or whatever it's avoiding a structural question and framing this at a level of charity for people who may be in exceptional circumstances um, but it's not addressing the fundamental issue. Do you think the idea of a rent bank in itself is 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 the problem, or do you think maybe the rent bank, uh, if it was alongside coming alongside other um, other forms of uh, policy or policy um, changes or or different policies that in your opinion, would actually be addressing the more uh, substantial or uh, the root causes of the problem. So I, I guess yeah, it's, it's, yeah. I think there's there's several ways in which the rent bank does pose a problem. And one one way in which it poses a problem is 
is that it is part of a marketing campaign, and that it, it poses a, a political, real a real political problem for those who are trying to make systemic or fundamental changes to the system because it's a very important part of marketing the current neoliberal government that we have. So um, on the one hand, um, it can help some people. And of course, on the other hand, if it was designed differently, it could help more people. But we're not just making the argument that it could be better. It, it is also being used in order to market the, the um, what we call ruthless neoliberal government we have in order to appeal to the best in voters and so on, to appeal to the progressive Vancouver. And uh, the PR and the marketing behind this and the amount of time that went into spinning the numbers uh, is, is quite substantial. And, it, and these, it's important, I think, for listeners and progressive Vancouver to realize not only that this is not enough, but it is important to understand when when something is PR and being marketed to you in order to cover up the true fundamental political economy of like the ruling government, which is a political party that accepts $2 million in donations every election cycle, half of that from private developers, and the party ruling government's job is to prop up high housing prices to empower a development monopoly of about six firms that dominate the market, about over 50%, the new inventory in the city, and funnel those profits back into the ruling party, the ruling government. Like That's the political economy. So when you know something that, uh, like a rent bank that could be minimal, is actually dominating the conversation um, in the city in order to cover up the true economics, that is a real it's also a real political problem and political literacy is important if we do want to say hey you know what not only is this not enough but this government is appealing to the best in me and lying to me so that I vote for them instead of for doing something whether it's voting or some other kind of organizing that's going to make some fundamental change not only a rent bank that works better or is that more more massive or that actually redistributes resources in a way that's that's fair or that doesn't further indebt renters but that doesn't uh, isn't like a, a fig leaf or candy coating you know the government that's actually causing the crisis mm -hmm. yeah totally and sorry like I think to add to that the the interest the important thing about the whole language and the the discourse around the rent bank is I think, and this ties to the question you're asking earlier, is it puts it does put the blame on the tenant instead of onto the system. It puts the blame onto the renter instead of the housing market. Um, it it does a, a kind of quite politically savvy and ex, uh, successful propagandistic job of making the renter appear to be the one who's having exceptional circumstances rather than the housing market being in a state of crisis. Um, it's consistent with the rent bank and street-to-home that Giustra's um, Radcliffe Foundation is itself an evangelical 
um, charity-based organization. So within, of course, this charity evangelical approach to poverty, poverty is always, of course, something that's in the soul <laughs> of the person who's the recipient of, of, of the charity. And charity itself always has that effect of, you know, putting the blame um, onto the person that's the recipient of the charity. So the the kind of evangelical project of the, of the Radcliffe Foundation is now just being extended into uh, into Vancouver with a rent bank and <laughs> the ruling vision Vancouver is all too happy to be able to um, adjust you know yeah, shift the question of the, of the housing crisis to this question of the renter who is in exceptional circumstances or whatever um, so I think there's some ideological play out there um, in the Zizekian <laughs> sense what's the And this is the city on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, and uh, also available as a podcast from the cityfm.org. And you're, if you're just tuning in, uh, you've been hearing a discussion unpacking the Vancouver Rent Bank, which was recently la- launched here in Vancouver. Uh, with uh, authors of a recent article um, published on the mainlander.com, and that's uh, pro- Vancouver's place for progressive politics. Um, and that article is uh, titled Financial Crisis and Tax Evasion, Unpacking Vancouver's Rent Bank. And I was in discussion with Nathan Crompton and Tristan Markle. And uh, now we made some reference to um, a political philosopher, uh, uh, Silva Zizek. And we're going to go now into um, a, a more uh, sort of philosophical or theoretical discussion um, about uh, charity and the way that we use charity or that charity is mobilized um, in a neoliberal context, um, in cultural capitalism, which he, he the term that he uses, um, and the very act of, um, of our social relations um, have this um, sort of built into it. So he uses the example of, of uh, Tom's Shoes, which have been uh, highly successful in their marketing campaign of, of one for one. So you buy one shoe and they send a pair of shoes to Africa. And so in the, in the inherent um, uh, process of consumption, um, of capitalist consumption, you are doing a charitable act. And so that's something that I think we can extend to a larger discussion around what does the Vancouver Rent Bank do and how does it, how does it discursively and politically operate um, and what kind of um, material consequences. So what does this mean on the ground uh, when people are given a loan that they have to repay, um, but that every, you know, the months after that period when they have to pay that back, uh, they have an increase in their rent because they're paying that um, paying that loan back without really addressing the, the more structural problems of the problem of affordable housing in Vancouver. So these are, uh, these are issues that I think uh, it's important to think about, and we need to um, certainly turn um, our discussion now to the idea of charity versus justice. So this is uh, Slovav Zizek, um, and this is available um, on YouTube as an RSA animate, uh, which illustrates uh, the lecture and the talk that he gives. Um, it's uh, called First is Tragedy, Then is Farce, uh, the same name as a book uh, that he published. I want to develop a very simple linear line of thought about one point. Why in our economy charity is no longer just an idiosyncrasy of some good guys here and there, but the basic constituent of our economy. 
I would like to start with the feature of so-called cultural capital capitalism, today's form of capitalism, and then develop how the same thing, thing applies also to economy in the narrower sense of the term. Namely, if in the old times, by old times I mean something very precise, before this 68 transformation of capitalism into, as we usually call it, more cultural capitalism, postmodern, caring for ecology and all that, What changed? What changed is that if before this time there was a simple, more or less simple, opposition between here it's consumation, you buy, you speculate and so on, then on the top of it, it comes what you do for a society, like, like Soros. He's still the old type here, I claim. In the morning he grabs the money, if I simplify it. In the afternoon he gives half of the money back to charities and supporting things and so on. But I claim in today's capitalism more and more the tendency is to bring the two dimensions together in one and the same gesture. So that when you buy something, your anti-consumerist duty to do something for others, for environment and so on, is already included into it. If you think I'm exaggerating, you have them around the corner, walk into any Starbucks coffee. And you will see how they explicitly tell you, I quote their campaign, it's not just what you are buying, it's what you are buying into. And then they describe it to you. Listen, when you buy Starbucks, whether you realize it or not, you are buying, buying into something bigger than a cup of coffee. You are buying into a coffee ethics. Through our Starbucks Shared Planet program, we purchase more fair trade coffee than any company in the world, ensuring that the farmers who grow the beans receive a fair price for their hard work. And we invest in and improve coffee growing practices and communities around the globe. It's a good coffee karma. And uh, uh, a little bit of the price of a cup of Starbucks coffee helps uh, furnish the place with comfortable chairs and so on and so on. You see, this is uh, what I call cultural capitalism at its purest. You don't just buy a coffee. You buy in the very consumerist act. You buy your redemption from being only a consumerist, you know. You do something for the environment, you do something to help starving children in Guatemala, you do something to restore the sense of community here, and so on and so on. This, and again, I could have go on, like the almost absurd example of this is so-called uh, Tom's Shoes, an American company whose formula is one for one. They claim for every pair of shoes you buy with them, they give a pair of shoes to some African nation and so on and so on, so that you know, one for one, one act of consumerism, but included in it, you pay for being redeemed of it, for doing something with the environment and so on and so on. This, this uh, generates almost a kind of a, how should I put it, a semantic, semantic overinvestment of burden, you know. It, it's not just buying a cup of coffee. It's at the same time you, again, you fulfill a whole series of ethical duties and so on and so on. And again, this logic, I think, is today almost universalized. Like, let's be frank, when you go to a store, probably you prefer buying organic apples. Why? Look deep into yourself. 
I don't think you really believe that those half-rotten apples which cost double the good old uh, uh, genetically modified apples that we all like, that they are really any better. I claim we are cynics there, skeptics, but you know, it makes you feel warm that I'm doing something for our mother earth, I'm doing something for our planet, and so on and so on. You, you get all that. So my point is that this very interesting short circuit where the very, as it were, act of egotist consumption and so on already includes the price for its opposite. Based against all of this, I think that we should return to good old Oscar Wilde, who still provided the best formulation against this logic of charity. Let me just quote a couple of lines from the beginning of his The Soul of Modern Men Under Socialism where he points out that, a quote, it is much more easy to have sympathy with suffering than it is to have sympathy with thought. People find themselves surrounded by hideous poverty, by hideous ugliness, by hideous starvation. It is inevitable that they should be strongly moved by all this. Accordingly, with admirable, though misdirected intentions, they very seriously and very sentimentally set themselves to the task of remedying the evils that they see. But their remedies do not cure the disease, they merely prolong it. Indeed, their remedies are part of the disease. They try to solve the problem of poverty, for instance, by keeping the poor alive, or in the case of a very advanced school, by amusing the poor. But this is not a solution, it is an aggravation of the difficulty. The proper aim is to try and reconstruct society on such a basis that poverty will be impossible, and the altruistic virtues have really prevented the carrying out of this aim. The worst slave owners were those who were kind to their slaves, and so prevented the horror of the system being realized by those who suffered from it, and understood by those who contemplated it. Charity degrades and demoralizes. It is immoral to use private property in order to alleviate the horrible evils that result from the institution of private property. I think these lines are more actual than ever. Nice as it sounds, basic income or this kind of a trade with the rich is not a solution. There is for me another, because of a whole series of problems, I see here another problem, again, which is, this is for me the last desperate attempt to make capitalism work for socialism. Let's not discard the evil, let's make the evil itself uh, work for the work for the good. You remember, you are not old enough, I am, how we were crazy 30, 40 years ago, we were dreaming about uh, socialism with a human face, you know. Like, it is as if today the utmost radical horizon of our imagination is global capitalism with a human face. We have the basic rules of the game, we make it a little bit more uh, uh, human, more tolerant, with a little bit more welfare, and so on and so on. First, my attitude is here, let's give to the devil what belongs to the devil, and re let's recognize that in the last decades, at least, till recently, at least in the Western Europe, I mean, there is no bullshitting here, let's admit it. I don't think that in any moment in human history did such a relatively large percentage of population live in such a relative freedom, welfare, security, and so on. I see this 
gradually but nonetheless seriously threatened. When I gave that interview for Hard Talk yesterday, the guy, Shaker, who is a bright guy, he's not just another Shaker, he told me, Stephen, you know, that, but you are basically misanthropic. I told him, yes, and they praised the British nation. You know very well that there is a certain type of misanthropy which is much better as a social attitude than this cheap charitable optimism and so on. I think that a mixture of a slight, not the hardline uh, apocalypticism, but let me call it like, you know, like we say, soft. No, uh, 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 Gianni Vatimo speaks about, uh, uh, speaks about uh, soft thought. I don't agree with him, but I would say soft apocalypticism. Like, it's not 2012, we know, but we are approaching a certain zero point. Things are, unfortunately, you may disagree, ecologically, socially, with new apartheid and so on. We are approaching a certain point, biogenetics and so on, where I'm not saying, of course, I'm not an idiot, that it will be returned to the old Leninist party, absolutely not. Again, I'm unequivocal here. 20th century communist experience was a mega, mega ethical, political, economic and so on catastrophe. I'm just saying that if... All the cherished values of liberalism, I love them, but the only way to save them is to do something more. You know what I'm saying? I'm not against charity, my God. In an abstract sense, of course, it's better than nothing. Just let's be aware that there is an element of hypocrisy there. That in a way, you know, like my argument, and I don't doubt people who met him told me that Soros is an honest guy, but there is a paradox how, you know, he's repairing with the right hand what he ruined with the left hand, how should I put it, no? That's all I'm saying. For example, of course we should help the children. It's horrible to see a child whose life is ruined because of an operation which costs $20. But in the long term, you know, as Oscar Wilde would have said, if you, if you just operate the child, then they will live a little bit better, but in the same situation which produced them. CATR is proud to sponsor the 17th Amnesty International Film Festival taking place November 2nd through the 4th at Pacific Cinematheque Theatre in downtown Vancouver. The festival will show nine films from around the world which will highlight a variety of human rights matters and will include guest speakers, the presence of other community groups, and ways for the public to take action on said matters. So come join in on one of the biggest human rights film festivals in the country. For more information or to buy tickets, you can check out www.amnesty.ca slash VFF. How much do you know about bites? Everything? Perfect. Nothing at all? Even better. At the UBC Bike Kitchen, you can use our space and tools to do your own bike maintenance, get one-on-one -on -one instruction on how to fix your bike yourself, or drop your bike off for us to repair. You can also buy a fully refurbished, guaranteed used bicycle, or a variety of new and used parts and accessories. The Bike Kitchen is UBC's non-profit, student-owned, full-service bike shop. We're located in the basement of the Student Union Building. Just look for the stairwell on the north side of the sub across from Gage Towers or search for the UBC Bike Kitchen on Facebook. Stop by the Bike Kitchen and then get riding.
With the vast amount of changes happening in the world, it's almost impossible to get a clear picture of what's really going on. We are trapped within the logic of capitalism, leaving us unable to imagine what comes next. The Extra Environmentalist brings the perspectives of people who can see the whole picture and are ready for whatever comes our way. Tune in to The Extra Environmentalist every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. on CITR 101.9 FM. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. And you're listening here to The City on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, and that's CJSF.ca. And you can find The City live on CITR from 5 to 6 p.m. every Tuesday, and syndicated on CJSF from 10 to 11 a.m. every Friday. And thank you so much, as always, for tuning into the program. If you missed any portion of the show, you can always catch it as a podcast at thecityfm.org. Again, that's www thecityfm.org and find the city on Twitter with the handle the city underscore FM um, as well as Facebook uh, and you can search Facebook by uh, searching the city uh, critical urban discussions and lots of content lots of great stuff uh, so check it out um, but we're gonna uh, just conclude the show and in, uh, in the in this program we've been talking about the Vancouver Rent Bank and unpacking and critically assessing uh, the Vancouver Rent Bank and those involved in it um, from uh, billionaire uh, mining magnate uh, Frank um, uh, Justra and um, the way that the way that it's going to operate and whether it actually fundamentally and systematically um, and structurally addresses the problems of um, of affordability and the lack thereof in Vancouver. Um, so, without uh, any further ado, I just want to conclude by. Uh, bringing you um, an excerpt from uh, the article that they uh, published on the mainlander.com and the, uh, the work that we were uh, uh, discussing. And if I can turn to the right page, I can, pr- I can provide that. They write, quote, the rent bank is presented as a solution for individuals experiencing temporary financial crisis, quote unquote. But the real financial crisis on the minds of the urban elite is the looming downturn in the local housing market in the face of declining wages and a deepening crisis in the global economy. This is the real meaning behind the repeated claims by vision politicians and NDP politicians like Spencer Chandra Herbert and the rent bank program will like uh, Herbert, that the rent bank program will benefit landlords. Herbert told the street, quote, landlords would also benefit from rent banks as they get their rent and don't face eviction costs, which a CMHC study recently pegged at $6,000, end quote. On the one hand, the fund is far too small to save landlords from the current system of debt accumulation, and of course will only deepen the problem. But in the context of Vancouver's uh, broader policy framework, the hope is to defer the crisis in hopes of sustaining Vancouver's breakneck levels of rent. And furthermore, just to conclude, they write, quote, that the rent bank is being used as a political tool by vision to gloss over their inadequate efforts to provide real solutions for Vancouver's tenants. Added to that, the Radcliffe Foundation and the rest of Vancouver's elite are using the street are using street to home as a tax haven. Under the current system, evictions will be blamed on tenants. Monthly housing costs will increase. The economic elite will have to pay uh, tax will not have to pay tax on their super-profitable mining corporations, and the political establishment will continue to shift the blame away from those who profit from the housing crisis the most, landlords and banks. Under the city and province, 
until the city and province challenge the private market instead of rewarding it through tax breaks, rents will continue to rise and landlords will continue to evict tenants. And that's an article published on the mainlander.com by Andrew Witt, Nathan Crompton, and Tristan Markle. And that's titled Financial Crisis and Tax Evasion, Unpacking Vancouver's Rent Bank. And again, thanks for tuning in. This is The City, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions. If you're tuning in live on CITR, we've got Flex Your Head coming up next at 6 p.m. And if you're on CJSF 90.1, you've got Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. And we're going to go out with a track from Tarana Horse. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll be back next week with more critical urban discussions. (laughs) 